Good morning. Please uh, take your, your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're working our way week by week, verse by verse, through the gospel according to Matthew. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The, the word of God. Well, last time we were in Matthew's gospel, we um, considered Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, and now Matthew continues, and the theme here is the, the visit of these wise men. How many wise men were there? Katcha. <laughs> there, there may have been three. We, we actually don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Um, I think the number three comes from the fact that they offered three gifts. But uh, anyway, so that's what we'll be looking at. And uh, these wise men teach us a lot about what it means to, to recognize and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, this whole account teaches us a lot also just about God's plan in sending his son into the world and caring for his son and providing for his people. So let, let's take a look at the passage in more detail. And the first thing that we see in verses 1 and 2 is the wise men's arrival in Jerusalem. The wise men's arrival in Jerusalem. Once again, 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So a couple of things here in verse 1. Bethlehem, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And uh, just to get our bearings here, this is from the ESV Study Bible. So here's Jerusalem, and then here's Bethlehem, five to six miles uh, southwest of Jerusalem. Bethlehem was known as the city of David, and um, this is where the uh, Messiah was going to be born. And you might wonder, well, how come there wasn't a crowd of people there waiting for the Messiah to be born? Well, don't forget, centuries had passed hundreds of years, maybe 500 years. Uh, And so it very well could be that people had given up hope. And even if there was a crowd of people waiting in Bethlehem for the birth of, of the Messiah, Jesus still could have come in under the radar because he wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for. And he wasn't born in a way that they were expecting. God has a way of taking the plans and expectations of fallen people like us and turning them upside down and showing us over and over again that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. But nevertheless, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then also, um, it was in the days of Herod the king, Matthew points out. And uh, I'll just read this piece to you from uh, Craig Blomberg, who wrote in the New American Commentary on Matthew. So Craig Blomberg wrote this about Herod the King. Herod the Great, as he was known, was a half-Jew, half-Idumean, who, through accommodation to the Romans, ascended to power as client ruler of Israel in 37 B.C., He was known as a great builder of public works and a shrewd diplomat in his dealings with both Romans and Jews. But he laid oppressive taxes on and conscripted labor from the Israelites. As he grew older, he became increasingly paranoid about threats against his person and throne. He had numerous sons, wives, and others close to him put to death because he feared plots to overthrow him. And it turns out that this story that we're reading about in the life of Jesus was probably about a year before the death of Herod the Great, and so he may have been at the peak of his paranoia, and we'll see that. So Herod was really this despicable character. Um, He was a compromiser, And uh, he was very jealous of power, as we'll see. And then also in verse 1, Matthew says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. These wise men, uh, in the original Greek, the word magi is used. And they were pagan wise men and priests, probably from Persia which was to the east, from the um, eastern mindset as well as geography. They were known for their practice of a combination of astronomical observation 
and astrological speculation. And by the way, we, we heard just a hint in Micah chapter 5 of how astrology, soothsaying, trying to tell the future, get messages from the stars, that's forbidden by God. It's a sin. They were pagan. And these wise men, these magi, they represent the irony of Christ's kingdom because the people who should have received Jesus rejected him. And the people who we wouldn't expect were the very ones who sought him out, these so-called wise men from the East. But somehow or another, between their knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures and their astronomical observances, somehow they figured out that Israel's Messiah king was born. And so in verse 2, we read, they, uh, they came into Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. By the way, in spite of what our Christmas cards often show, uh, the wise men coming and worshiping baby Jesus in the manger, this is probably one to two years after the birth of Jesus. And notice that, that uh, they, they don't come into a barn, they come into a house, and uh, they don't bow before a manger, but it's the child Jesus. But anyway, this is probably one to two years after the birth of Jesus in chapter one. And this star, it's re, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us much about this star. We do read in Numbers 24 and verse 17, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. But I believe that star is a metaphor for referring to the Messiah himself. Um, and we don't have to figure out um, exactly how the astronomy works out because God is the one who spoke all things into existence in the beginning. God is the one who created all the stars by the power of his word. He named all the stars He's the one who um, assigns to all of the stars in the heavens where they will exist. And so it's nothing for God to supernaturally, miraculously have this star appear to these magi and lead them to where Jesus was. So this is what the magi had to say. This was their reaction to what they had observed, but it turns out that Herod had a very different reaction. And so in verses 3 and 4, notice verse 3, first of all, when Herod the king heard this, the fact that these magi were in town and saying what they were saying, he was troubled. Herod was not looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. He was not waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was troubled. This made him nervous. 
and his anxiety, his being troubled in his soul, it seems was contagious. It's, Matthew says, and all Jerusalem with him. Maybe that's why there wasn't a crowd of people waiting for the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem, the promised city of the Messiah's birth. But Herod was not looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Herod thought of the Messiah as his competitor, not his Lord and Savior, his political adversary. Jesus would get in the way of Herod's plans and ambitions. Therefore, in Herod's mind, as we'll see, Jesus had to go. This newborn king had to be removed from the picture. But for now, Herod needed to look the part of a true Jew. So in verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Then we see from Matthew's account the fulfillment of prophecy in verses 5 and 6. So Herod summons the chief priests, the scribes. He asks them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5 now, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So they go, they go to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and in Micah chapter 5, which is the chapter that Brother Phil read for us earlier, it says, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no me, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's interesting that they, they knew where to go in the scriptures to figure out where the Messiah was going to be born. But it seems that they weren't very concerned about what the Messiah was going to be all about or who the Messiah was or was, was going to be. So we read from Micah chapter 2 earlier. Look back there again real, real quickly. Notice in the very verse that they um, appealed to, notice what else we're told about the Messiah besides his birthplace. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And this was the expectation of the Messiah. But then listen to this whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That's Old Testament language used to describe God, and specifically the, the eternality of God, the fact that God has always existed. God is called the Ancient of Days. And in Psalm 90, we're, we're told that um, God has, is from of old. And so 
Micah, as he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit, is describing this coming one, this Messiah, who would be born in Bethlehem in divine terms. He's saying this one who is going to be born in Bethlehem pre-existed his birth. In fact, he is the eternal God of very gods. And how can that be? Well, it's just what we've already seen from Matthew's pen. Emmanuel. Jesus' name shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. When Jesus was born, God was literally with us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's interesting that they knew where to look to figure out where Jesus was going to be born, but they sure didn't milk the word for anything more than that. And that's a lesson to us, by the way. When we go to the word of God, we shouldn't have our personal agenda just to find the things there that we want to find. Just to read about God's blessings and God's goodness and thank God for his blessings and his goodness. Or even just to be tantalized by prophecy. When we go to the word of God, let's never forget the star of the show, Jesus Christ, and who he is and what he came into the world to accomplish. If we miss that, pay attention to the details, then we're, we're just like these Christless Jewish religious leaders who told Herod what he wanted to hear. So Herod found out where Jesus was going to be born in Jerusalem. Next, we hear from Matthew about Herod's plot in verses 7 and 8. Herod's plot. So now that Herod knows the place, now he wants to get more information about the time. So, verses 7 and 8, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Jerusalem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And because this story isn't new to us, we know what happens. We know that Herod had no intention of worshiping the Messiah. The reason why Herod wanted to know where he was born and when he was born is so that he could formulate a plan to actually murder the Messiah. That's where his heart was, in spite of what his words said. Then in verses 9 through 12, the wise men's worship. The wise men's worship. After listening to the king, these wise men from the east went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose 
went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Again, don't get wrapped around the axle of astronomy and try to figure this out. God is the God who performs miracles. Creation itself was a miracle. God is able to do something like this. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. The wise men knew that this child that they were seeking was special. So note verse 11. And going into the house, so it's a house, not a barn, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They didn't worship them. They didn't worship Mary. They worshipped Jesus. They didn't worship Jesus through Mary. They worshiped Jesus alone. Remember, there's only one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Not Mary, not the angels, not a priest, not, no one else. There's God and there's Jesus. And we must come to God through Jesus. Then, Matthew continues, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So these are valuable gifts. Matthew describes them as treasures. Uh, gold is obvious. It is amazing, by the way, and this is not an advertisement. I don't think I own any gold. Uh, but gold has always been recognized throughout the ages in every culture and time as, uh, as a valuable commodity. And so part of the treasure, the first thing mentioned from Matthew is gold. They offered this to Jesus. Frankincense was an exotic incense. In fact, the word incense is in the word. Frankincense. And myrrh was an expensive spice. So this they offered to Jesus. Now that's really interesting because Herod, confronted with the same set of facts, wants to kill Jesus. The Magi, they offer worship to Jesus. And that's really instructive for us, especially thinking about the worship of the Magi here. Whether these wise men were genuine believers or not, had they actually repented of their paganism and come to faith in the promised Messiah, we don't know. I suppose it's possible. But whether they were actually genuine believers or not, they illustrate how to properly respond to Jesus. Worship. And we don't have the child Jesus to worship. We don't offer necessarily gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
But we are called to offer worship to Jesus. And I'd like to, I'd like to uh, suggest to you these, these three ways in which we as believers offer worship to Jesus. And I think that if you think about it, you'll probably come up with more aspects, more examples. But, but think about this with me. How can we offer or what can we offer to Jesus in worship? Our own righteousness. Our own righteousness. Look in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote here. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, after he lists his, his pedigree, his, um, his genealogy, where he came from, he was a Jew, he was a Benjamite, and then his religiosity, Paul concludes that by saying, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So there's all that he counted as gain, one side of the scale, and then there's Christ. And when Saul of Tarsus became a believer, Jesus tipped the scale. All Jesus, everything else, loss. Zero, worthless, of no value. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Literally, sorry, doo-doo. That's the word that Paul used. Excrement, human waste. I counted it, I counted them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Fundamental to coming to Jesus is sacrificing your own righteousness. Recognizing that your own righteousness is worthless in the sight of God. What people think is important in terms of family background and socioeconomic status and good works and religiosity and all of that, absolutely worthless when it comes to our standing before God, we must renounce all of it. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's either Jesus or you're lost in your unrighteousness. And you, you come to the Lord and you say in your heart, with your mouth as well, something like, Lord, I know, I know that I'm a sinner. There's nothing that I have done or can do to make myself right in your sight. 
And now I'm realizing, Lord, that even my, my good works, my good deeds that I've thought were good, you see fault in them. You see pollution in them. You see filth in them. Lord, I know that if I would ever be saved, if I would ever be accepted by you, it must be Jesus and Jesus alone. I claim Jesus by faith. Really, that's what Paul's saying here in Philippians chapter three. And so how can we offer to Jesus something in worship? Well, we, we offer our own righteousness. We give it up. Another thing that we offer to Jesus in worship is our lives, our lives. Look back in Matthew's gospel and eventually we're gonna get to chapter 16. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And why is that a big deal? Because naturally we don't deny ourselves. The, the Bible, Old Testament, Isaiah, describes us like this. We have turned everyone to his own way. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that uh, before Christ, we all lived for ourselves. Self is so much wrapped into what our lives are all about. Even when we do good works and help other people, ourselves, we are at the center of that. It's, it's all about us. And if you're honest with yourself before God, you'll see that that's, that's the case. So Jesus says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. What does that look like? Verse 25 for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus doesn't mean that when you become a Christian, you literally die. Some Christians do literally die for the cause of Jesus and his kingdom. But what he means by losing our life and taking up our cross is basically surrendering our lives, giving up control of our lives, giving, giving up um, lordship of our lives to King Jesus. God has, after all, made Jesus of Nazareth both Lord and Savior, and so when you believe in Jesus, you believe in the whole Jesus, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that means 
I'm no longer calling the shots. I'm no longer setting the agenda. My, my life is no longer dictated by the, the gospel according to Lynn. <laughs> it's now oriented towards Jesus. And certainly that's not perfect. That's what sin is. Sin is about us wanting to do our own thing, our own way. And no one is ever perfectly free from sin in this life. But in terms of orientation, in terms of direction, in terms of commitment, at the moment of conversion, there's this fundamental change. Died to myself. I've given up my life in order to follow Jesus. And by the way, the promise of Jesus is that if we do take up our cross and follow him, if we do lose our lives for his sake, he will give us life in return and that more abundantly, culminating in eternal life in heaven. So what can we offer to Jesus in worship? Our own lives, or our own righteousness, our lives, and thirdly, our minds. Remember Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Remember, that's what we're talking about. These, these magi are sacrificing, in a sense, to Jesus. They're bringing him gifts, costly gifts. They brought him gifts from their treasures. It's a sacrifice. Well, we are also called to present a sacrifice to the Lord, not a sacrifice by which our sins are atoned. Jesus did that once for all on Calvary's cross. But nevertheless, there is a sacrifice that is to be offered up. And it's no easy sacrifice. It's not somebody else or something else. It's us. Our bodies, ourselves, our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God because Jesus has made us holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or reasonable service. And then listen to how this practically works itself out. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So part of what we offer to Jesus in worship, are, it's ourselves, but it's also our minds. We, we give up the right to make up our own rules, our own worldview, our own idea about who God is, who Jesus is, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to live. We give that up. And instead, we surrender our minds to King Jesus. And one way of describing the Christian life 
is a life of continual transformation of our thinking so that we would be more and more conformed to the word of God. The word of God written in the scriptures, but the word of God living also in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So just some thoughts here on what we can offer to Jesus, not gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but our own righteousness, our lives, our minds. And then finally, in conclusion, I've mentioned this already, you think about Herod, you think about these wise men, they represent two kinds of responses to Jesus. There's King Herod. King Herod represents you. You are represented in King Herod if you are jealous over the kingdom of your life. You're not going to share the throne of your life with anyone. You don't want Jesus to rule over you as your Lord. In fact, truth be told, you would wipe out Jesus if you could. But you're willing to play the part of a decent religious person when it serves you to hide your true self. King Herod represents you if that's you. Or the wise men. The wise men represent you if you recognize the greatness of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you, and you're continually worshiping Jesus, not, not just once, but continually throughout your life by offering to him yourself as a living sacrifice. Like Thomas, that the Apostle John uh, records for us, like Thomas, you say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And the good news is that if King Herod best describes you, you don't have to stay that way. Jesus invites you to come to him, to turn away from your sins, from your King Herodness, and embrace him by faith, trust him, believe in him, put your hope and confidence in him, and yes, follow him, and he will save you. He will transform you from being a little King Herod into being a wise man, woman, boy, or girl. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our great Savior. We thank you for our great salvation. And we thank you, Lord, for um, how even this incident, um, this part of Jesus' life involving Herod and the wise men from the East, this teaches us so much about the gospel, about 
salvation and what it means to be a follower of Christ. Would you please help us as Christ's followers to be more faithful, more committed, more Christ-like in our walk of faith? Would you please forgive us of our sins? Would you cleanse us from all unrighteousness? And Lord, if there are any who have the heart of King Herod here today, would you overcome their stubbornness? Would you turn the light on in their minds and soften their hearts and lead them to Christ even today? May today be the day of their salvation. For we ask in Jesus' worthy name, amen.